Well, just as we sang, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We offer up to you our lives, you know, each and every day, each Sunday. No one else truly is worthy of praise. No one else is worthy of our praise. You are the Holy One, and it's by your blood, the blood of your cross for us, that we're able to approach by faith, having our sins completely forgiven. As it says in Colossians, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Lord Jesus, we praise you as the creator and the sustainer of all things this morning, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, we praise you, holy triune God, great and glorious and mysterious in all of your perfections. And Lord Jesus, we specifically praise you that you're the head of your church, that you died and rose again for your church, that you have first place in all things, and we honor you this morning as our Savior and as our head. Your reconciliation abounds throughout all the earth and you are adored throughout the earth and in heaven. And we pray this morning that we would see more of your glory through the scriptures and through your teaching. And we pray in your name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study. Am I not on, John? Am I on now? Is that better? Oh. Uh, got it? Okay, good. All right. Sounds better, even to me. Okay, good. So, well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, in Luke chapter uh, 14. And so I want to start off by telling you a story about a man I met a number of years ago in East Asia. His name was Clark. It's not his real name, of course. Um, but I was on a mission trip and uh, had a few significant conversations with this man named Clark. He was a businessman. Um, in this community that gave us a lot of access to a lot of people to share the gospel with them. And so I got to talk to him over a few days. And I learned from Clark that he was really proud to tell me that he was a half-Christian. I'd never heard about a half-Christian before, so I was really surprised. I was wondering, what does he mean? You know, is there such a thing as a half-Christian? Uh, if so, how would that actually work itself out in life, like if you were a half-Christian? What would it look like? And so he was very proud of this position, so at first I'm thinking, well, maybe he's open to further conversations. You know, we're meeting every day, making plans. And so uh, apparently it was a good thing he wanted me to know anyway. So we would talk about what it means to be a Christian, uh, some of Jesus' teachings over the next few days. But I also found out that really this was, also, was not a way of being open. He was not saying it to me because he wanted a conversation. He was saying it because he didn't want a conversation. He didn't want any more of Jesus or Christianity. And I found out specifically which half he didn't like. That was the half where he had to be faithful to his wife. That part he didn't like. Yeah. So I figured it out. But we remained friends all the, during that week. And I pray for Clark on occasion. But you know, at least Clark was honest. You know, honest about who he was, honest about what he thought of Jesus' teachings. And uh, he knew that he really wasn't committed as a Christian. 
you know, it's, it's sort of refreshing in a way to run into these people because we can so often we run into people who adamantly proclaim that they're fully a Christian, but they're really only half Christians. At least Clark admitted he was a half Christian. Well, maybe you're here this morning because you're thinking about following Jesus, or maybe you're here this morning because you know other people who want to follow Jesus and you want to help them follow Jesus. Maybe you're here because you're in a new and difficult place in your life wondering, is it still worth it to follow Jesus? Maybe you would like to tell others what, uh, what it really means and that you can't be a half Christian. Uh, perhaps you yourself are just a half follower and uh, this makes you uncomfortable. Well, we're going to look at uh, Luke 14, verse 25 to 35, and listen to Jesus as he lays out the terms for following him as a disciple. So Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether one has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So true disciples of Jesus have counted the cost, and they're living the life as described in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And what we're going to learn this morning is that Jesus has to occupy first place in our life and the lives of disciples with everything else being a distant second. Jesus has to be first place in our life with everything else a far distant second. And Luke shows us how Jesus called these true disciples out of a mass of people that were half-hearted followers. And what we'll see is that we, we might really compare what's going on in this passage to, as we read through it here, um, choosing a sports team maybe if you will, the process of making various cuts along the way. He's got all these people. And in verses 25 to 27, Jesus makes two very quick and easy cuts. And then in verses 28 to 33, he tells two stories, and he makes the final cut. And then finally, in verses 34 to 35, he inspires those who made the team with a great speech. You know, Jesus often taught in uncomfortable terms like a good rabbi would, like a good prophet would, really like the Lord would. And Jesus is dealing with people here in our passage that are largely not listening very well to him and what he's been teaching very carefully. Most likely, you're not in that category this morning. You've already made the team, so to speak, and you're following Jesus and wanting to learn how to follow him even better. But Jesus still doesn't spare any of us as he speaks in this passage this morning. He speaks about the true cost of discipleship for the long haul, for life. And we know that Jesus is really looking for consistent commitment. He doesn't want casual commitment. 
He wants consistent commitment in the lives of his disciples. So our question that we all have to deal with this morning is how can I be more of a consistent follower of Jesus and show that commitment to the world and to Jesus? And so hopefully this morning it's a very encouraging passage, even though it's a very, very difficult one. So in addressing this crowd of followers of mixed motives, Jesus makes these two quick and easy cuts in verses 25 to 27. He has many followers who have been part of his group for some time. Verse 25, we see that, oh, there's crowds, great crowds accompanying him. And uh, here's another note on Jesus' fame. Large numbers of people following him. He's on his way to Jerusalem as we're reading through the Gospel of Luke. But he's taking his time. And he's stopping in a lot of villages and a lot of towns to continue to teach people. Now, it was appealing to follow Jesus uh, because he was a captivating teacher. I mean, who doesn't want to be around a captivating teacher? He was a powerful leader. Um, maybe, the people thought, maybe he's even the Messiah. And we know many of these people are following him not because they're true disciples of his. They're just interested in Jesus for a variety of reasons. It's really very similar to today. A lot of people claim that they follow Jesus, and it runs the gamut from the reasons on why they do. And Jesus knows this too. And there are probably a few in the crowd that are really true disciples, and as he sets the terms, they're going to be called out from the midst. So he only wants the truly committed, we see right away. He says, he who doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So Jesus makes it clear immediately that he only wants the truly committed. So this commitment level is intense. You can't describe discipleship more intensely than this. So anyone who wants to come to him have to come to him on these terms. So as we read this, we think, oh, it must not be as easy to be a Christian as maybe I thought. And Jesus is going to make three rounds of cuts. The first is family, the second is suffering, and the third is possessions. So the first one comes in regards to the family. So Jesus has to be first, and our family has to be a distant second. And hate here is a rhetorical term. It's a one of comparison. Some of your translations might try to soften it by saying you must love them less. Uh, in this particular translation, or or this particular section, though, it means more like abandon. You need to abandon them or renounce them for Jesus' sake. So, in other words, in comparison to our love for Jesus, we have to abandon or renounce our families. That includes parents, spouses, children, even our own lives. And Jesus uses such a rhetorical tone to make it very clear he's not interested in a discussion. These terms are not up for negotiation. He makes it very, very clear. And Jesus is not, of course, here advocating abandoning one's own family as if he were some kind of a cult leader. Jesus expects Christian families to be strong. But that the path to strength is to put him first, to put him way out in front of our families so that it's obvious to all. And it's true that we often do get accused of abandoning and hating our families when we follow Jesus. Maybe some of you have chosen to go on mission trips and miss a family reunion or something, and you never hear the end of it. You know, or maybe you embarrass your family because of your newfound eager faith for Jesus and you feel this disappointment for life. Maybe you've been accused of sheltering and brainwashing your children because you teach them about Jesus. 
Maybe you end up polarizing your family and alienating yourself without even trying to do so, and you don't even really know why it's the case, but for some reason you become the pariah of the family. And it goes on and on and on. So that's one set of things that we, we find, but it's also true that we have another serious contemporary problem that's even entered the church, and that's sort of the opposite side, which is to ide idolize the family. Now, maybe that's partly a reaction because we have all this family disintegration going on around us in our society. We all know that fight. We're all involved in that. That's great. We don't need to talk about that a whole lot. But sometimes in the church, people will even sacrifice everything for the sake of their family, and family becomes the supreme value in life, even above Jesus, although people will rarely admit it. So people will use their family, their children, their parents, their grandchildren, their grandparents as an excuse from discipleship and the demands of following Jesus. And it reveals at best that it's really a weak Christian family, not a strong one like they assert. And parents end up teaching their children by their words and actions what is really important. And if we teach our children by words and actions that they are really important, that's the wrong way to raise children because Jesus is ultimately the first place, and the one who is most important. A strong Christian family is going to be committed to Christian formation, to sacrifice and service for Jesus' sake. Um, Jesus is really saying on the flip side here, this is the best way to raise a family. To not put them first, but to put Jesus first, and the family a distant second. And if you put Jesus first, then all these other things are going to line up like you would hope for. You see, as we've often told people and classes we've, my wife and I have taught in parenting these things, is that Jesus loves our children more than we do, more than we can. And we have to really trust that he has greater purposes in their lives than we can ever imagine or hope for. And what we need to be doing is discipling our children, not doting on them. Now the second cut after family, that's a pretty harsh cut, is suffering so Jesus must be first in our comfort, and staying alive has to be second. That's, that's pretty harsh. So, like, you got to be willing to die if you want to be his disciple. Cross-bearing is an obvious parallel here to his own suffering for the Father's will to redeem us from our sins. So the cross becomes a Christian symbol of living, and it teaches us that our life is going to be full of suffering, of sacrifice, and self-denial for the gospel. So taking up one's cross is accepting that what Jesus is saying, accepting this pattern of life. And it's going to have so many different expressions throughout our lives, where you have to bear your cross, as we use the phrase so frequently, and it's going to have different meanings at different points in our life. Now again, Jesus is using this rhetorical tone to make it very clear again that he's not interested in a conversation about what the terms are. He sets the terms, it's his discipleship, if you want to be his disciple, this is the way it works. So he means every word of it, though, that suffering is a part of it, and without suffering, you really can't follow him. He would teach, as it's recorded in John 15, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And there's going to be a whole lot more on this topic as we go through the Gospel of Luke and the rest of the New Testament. But these two quick and easy cuts, and you wonder, like in the storyline, Jesus got all these great crowds of people following him, and then he just turns around and he says to him, well, unless you hate your father or mother, you can't follow me. 
It's like, in fact, if you're not willing to lay down your life, goodbye. And you wonder how many people were really left that day. Jesus is intense and serious about discipleship. He's no ordinary rabbi because they're used to following rabbis where you could just sort of learn leisurely. You could listen to them teach things, and it was great because it was so convenient, and it just reinforced all the ideas you already had about yourself. Now, Jesus isn't that kind of rabbi. He requires everything from our lives absolutely. Now, most of us here this morning have counted the cost and accepted the terms. We're really strange because we read these terms and we think, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. Now, let's do that because Jesus is worth it all. And we go forward trusting him, although he is really frightening as a leader. He should be as we read all these things. And for Christians, it, it can be easy to say that we, we agree to these terms of his lordship, but we might want to examine our lives closely to see if we have actual evidence in our lives of his lordship. I hope God blesses you with seeing some of that and abundantly in your life, that evidence, and you can praise him for it because Jesus has to occupy first place in our life, far above everything else. Everything else is a distant second. That includes our families, and it includes our own lives and our own comfort. Now next, Jesus tells two stories before he makes the final cut. Uh, not too many around, I would expect at this point anyway. But uh, these two brief stories or parables or pictures of Jesus' rationale for what he's going to be doing in this third cut. And it's a good way to uh, sort of build up the suspense. So we have a picture of a man constructing a watchtower in verses 28 to 30. And then we have a picture of a king who faces war in verses 31 to 32. So first of all, the man constructing a watchtower, we read starting in verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, well, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, contrary to popular belief, this passage has nothing to do with church building programs. Right? As Christians, we try to take the edge off of things like this. Yeah, it's not, it's not about church building programs. So back to the tower. It's not a military tower. This is a watch tower that a person would build um, in a large house or a stage or a vineyard. And the owner needs to plan well in order to be able to finish the construction uh, in a timely manner. And if he doesn't finish it, he's going to look like a fool. And all his neighbors are going to be looking around, what is that thing in your yard? You know. And so that's a very short story. That's the whole story. The point's easy. He was not able to finish. That would really be a sad commentary for someone who claimed to follow Jesus. They were not able to finish. Such disciples look like fools twice, once for following Jesus and then for quitting. And people need to know the cost of discipleship up front, at least more than we typically would tell them, at least as I've found in our culture. People need to know what kind of a commitment they're going to be making when they follow Jesus. And it has implications when how we share the gospel with people. Are we really realistic with them on what it means to follow Jesus and honest with them and fair? Or are we actually making people look foolish? Well, then there's a picture of a king facing war. And he says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others yet are way off, 
he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So in this particular story, it's pretty simple. King has an army coming against him twice the size. So a foolish king would just say, ah, oh, that's no problem. I can win the battle anyway. My 10,000 are great. And they just rush into battle. Well, that would be a very foolish thing to do. Wisdom would dictate a careful consideration of whether or not these 10,000 can actually beat the 20,000. Counsel with advisors, these types of things. Are you going to be able to win? And if after the consideration he realizes, no, nah, I don't think we're going to win this one, um, sends a delegation for peace terms. Otherwise, it would be very embarrassing and a great loss. Another short story. The point is simple. We want to avoid an embarrassing and deadly outcome in our discipleship. We should ask about the terms before signing up, before being a, a follower of Jesus, and not just follow blindly, rushing into it. People tend to ask just about the benefits of being a Christian, and they focus there, but that's ill-advised, according to Jesus. In this situation, discipleship under Jesus Christ is a very serious matter with consequences for this life and for eternity. So a well-considered decision for Jesus is much better than a quick decision for Jesus. Now, just to be clear, people can make decisions for Christ in a relatively short period of time, but that's provided they have enough information that is actually reliable and serious about what it means to follow Jesus. And it has implications for how we share the gospel with people again. Are we encouraging people to fully consider what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus? Following the Holy Spirit as he leads as written in the scriptures? Or are we counseling people unwisely, really just sending them off to war in a foolish way? So here comes the third and final cut. So verse 33 summarizes the point of these two stories. Verse 33 is very simple. So therefore, after telling these two stories, Jesus says, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that you have cannot be my disciple. It covers both of those parables, drawing attention that the cost is total. So it's going to cost you everything to build the tower, and it's going to cost you everything to win the war. And we have to renounce the world and all of its pursuits in order to join up with Jesus. This is the third cut on possessions. Jesus must be first, and our possessions a very, very distant second. And again, Jesus is using a rhetorical tone so as to make it very clear, again, there's no room for discussion with him. That's what it costs. And the rest of the Bible is going to fill this all out for us in these kinds of statements of him, of Jesus that he makes. But we as know as disciples that he's speaking about a complete mindset change with practical outcomes. One way that we often talk about it is that we have to make the change from being owners to stewards. So the world thinks they own their stuff. But as Christians, we know that we own nothing, that Jesus owns it all, and that we've been entrusted with our resources to serve him and to live our lives. And hopefully you've already made that move, and glad you have. I know most of you have. But Jesus tells these two stories, and then he makes this final cut. So I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine named Tom. So Tom and I, a number of years ago, were doing evangelism on a college campus, and we would do this regularly a couple times a week, go out and meet people, talk to them about Jesus. But Tom had a very unique way of doing evangelism, one that I hadn't seen before, really, and that is, you know, we'd share, get to know people, share the gospel with them. You've probably been through this before. You go through the gospel message, 
And then people oftentimes are really excited. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to have my sins forgiven, have eternal life, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the story, we know the story. And then Tom would say, well, not so fast. And then Tom would actually turn to this passage in Luke 14, believe it or not, and he'd read it to them. So his goal was to talk, he would, his goal was to get people to want Jesus and then to talk them out of wanting Jesus. That's how he did it. And so then he would go to this passage in Luke 14, he'd read it to them and say, well, you know, actually there's more to the story. This is what Jesus said his discipleship involves. You actually have to put him above your family, above your own life, and above everything in life. And Tom was just simply being honest and considerate and giving people time to consider it, the whole situation. Now, he wouldn't just leave it there, of course, but it'd also be like, do you need to think about it a little bit more? People, yeah, I think I probably should. Like, okay, well, we'll meet tomorrow. What are you doing at lunch? And then we'd meet with them tomorrow and see what they came up with. Other people would be like, right away, would be, that's okay, I understand, I know, I still want Jesus because I know Jesus is way more important than these other things in my life. And it was obvious that the Spirit of God was working on them. But you know, you might think, what a stupid way to do evangelism. I bet he didn't get many converts. He got tons of them. He was a very successful evangelist, and sometimes I adopt his approach too. Because especially in those situations where it's sort of hazy, and you don't really know, does this person really get it? And you don't want to lead them down a false path. And so you want to give them something more to consider. So you might want to try it sometime. My friend was just doing evangelism the way Jesus did it. And he was telling people about what it would cost to follow Jesus. That he has to have first place in your life, and everything has to be a distant second. And people follow that kind of stuff. They do, because Jesus, through his spirit, is working in them to convict them of their sin and to bring them to himself. And it looks like a really good deal to those who are being called. Well, now, Jesus gets to his, his speech to those of us who made the team. In verses 34 to 35, it's a sort of a short one. It says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's to be thrown away, and who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's obvious after the final cut who's on the team and who's not. I mean, it's the people who are left standing at this point uh, in the crowd. And so there's this very short speech that Jesus gives. And with these brief comments, he's preparing his followers for what's coming up. Now, it's going to do them no good to be committed only for the short term in verses 34 and 35. They have to listen carefully at the very end in verse 35b and accept what he says. So as we read about the salt, salt in the ancient world was very important for a variety of reasons. It wasn't readily available. It was less pure. Uh, its primary purposes were two, uh, preservation and seasoning. Here the emphasis is on seasoning or flavoring, Matthew and Mark. Um, Jesus used a metaphor to encourage people to not let their witness be diluted. But Luke is recording it here and using the metaphor to warn the disciples not to lose their fervor. And again, it's a way of stressing the necessity of total commitment and a consistent life, which is the theme of the text. Now, salt could lose its flavoring capability by unscrupulous dealers who cut it with other stuff, or changes in the areas that 
you would be excavating it from. But once that flavoring capability is gone, you can't get it back because there's no way to refine it with time. In fact, at that point, it's not even useful for lesser things like fertilizing soil or killing weeds or even slowing down the fermentation process in a manure pile. So you have to throw it away and go get some more. So the point is, disciples who lose their primary commitment to Jesus are useless. They're not good for any spiritual purpose. Perhaps you run into some of these people who just go through the motions or they really just sort of look like fleshly people in the world. And sadly, we observe these cases of useless so-called disciples who only follow Jesus for a short time. We realize they really weren't ever following him anyway. So the application is obvious. Don't be like these people, right? Rather, be true to the end. Persevere. And look at the, the corollary, and that is, is that being useful to Jesus Christ brings great joy. To be that kind of a disciple, to be able to live your life all out for Jesus without fear of all these other things in your life, that even though they're blessings, can sometimes be encumbrances. And we as disciples of Jesus are then ready to go out into the world, to do his will, to watch the gospel succeed, to see the kingdom expand. That's what Jesus' disciples do. That's what we see them do in the Bible. And that's what we want to be doing as well. So then he gets to the very end, and he says these words that he says so many times after he speaks. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, go home and think about what I said to you. He would often end his teachings with these words. It's an injunction to listen very carefully and to consider what he just taught you. It's also an invitation to accept it, to believe it, to follow it. Jesus knows that true disciples are going to figure it out. That's the thing. He already knows that the true disciples, they're going to figure it out, and they're going to end up following him, and we need to trust this pattern of this calling out disciples. You know, so often, American evangelicals think in terms of getting the numbers, but Jesus tends to think in terms of getting the commitment. And we need to start changing the way we think about doing evangelism so that we go after the true commitment to Jesus Christ. And he inspires those who made his team here. He chooses to raise the bar even more with this discussion about salt. And we often do the same type of a thing. When we talk to people, we, we have sayings like, you know, if you require commitment from people, then you're going to get it from them. right? And so we raise the bar, and people... People find their way to get there. It raises morale. That's what Jesus is doing. This may not be your favorite speech by Jesus. It uh, doesn't look very inspirational. But you don't have to worry. He has a lot of other speeches coming in Luke, and some of them you'll like a lot better than this one. So they're coming up. But discipleship is for life, and that's what we learn here, that Jesus has to occupy first place in the lives of his disciples with everything else a distant second. Now, from our text today, we read this whole thing, and you were probably reading it sitting there in, in your pew before we started this morning, thinking, like, what in the world are we gonna, is he going to talk about today? But Jesus is so extreme in this passage. Like, who in the world would ever want to follow this guy? Who, he's so extreme, so absolute, so not interested in conversation about it. We might even be dare to say that, you know, we use this coach metaphor. Well, Jesus is a terrible coach. 
Well, that's because I made that up, and that's really not what he's doing, right? So he's not a coach. He's the Lord, and he's our Lord God. And so when we consider the severity of his demands for discipleship, it should be obvious then that the only way anyone is ever going to say, yes, please, Jesus, sign me up, is if the Holy Spirit is already working inside their heart and their mind. That's the only way anyone would ever sign up to follow this guy. It's the Spirit of God that pushes people to accept the rigors that Jesus lays out. And by the Spirit of God, the person being called reads what Jesus says here, and they think, this is the best deal I have ever heard in my life. To give my life totally up to the Lord Jesus, then I will be happy, and my sins will be forgiven, and I don't have to worry about all these other things in my life. It's only by the Spirit of God when he actually pushes people then to make progress in their discipleship where we would even think as Christians, I want to keep going in this direction. It's only by the Spirit of God. And we need a lot of hope after a lesson like this, and the hope only comes to us by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as believers. He sheds abroad this hope in our hearts, as the Scriptures say. You know, one of Jesus' points in all of the sharp rhetoric today is really for personal reflection on what it means to be a true disciple. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'm into recommending books these days, so I have another book for you. Um, you've probably heard about it. It's called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So he was a pastor in Germany during World War II. The book first came out in 1937. But it's a wonderful book. It's a modern-day classic called The Cost of Discipleship. I'd really encourage you to read it. Um, a lot of good stuff in there. But Jesus made priority cost of discipleship clear. He's to be first. He's to be way out in front. Family, comfort, possessions have to be a distant second. What is strange, as we've already said, is that a true disciple like you and me, we look at these demands with eagerness and envy, and we want to live them out. In fact, we want to grow in these things in our life. Following Jesus is a, is a lifetime commitment. It's a lifestyle commitment in growing in the grace of God. And as with the original disciples, we're going to learn and grow as we follow Jesus and we follow his words. And we don't be, like some people want to describe themselves, a half Christian. But we want to be a full Christian that follows Jesus fully. And so we follow him. And that we know that there's mercy and there's grace to become better disciples. Because we also know as disciples, we're going to fail. And we're going to fall. And we're going to need mercy. And we're going to need more power. And we're going to need grace in our lives. We're going to need to recognize our weaknesses. Well, it's there for us as we follow Jesus. And so hopefully you can see a consistent commitment in your own life and a growing consistency as you look towards your future. Luke's design in this passage is really not to discourage us. His design in recording all of this for us is to encourage us, to encourage the church, to strengthen us as true disciples who already follow Jesus. He wants us to see as the church truly and more so that putting Jesus first is the way to live and everything else can live in distant second in our life. So may the Lord Jesus accomplish this in us as his church. Let me pray for us. But Lord Jesus, as the scriptures say, you are preeminent in all things. 
and that includes preeminency in our lives. And we confess that you have first place and we want you to show that more and more in our lives, whatever it takes to cause us to see it. And that we would understand that even the things that we love so dearly in this life that are such blessings from you must still remain in second place and you are to receive all of our praise and our glory. It's really the only way to enjoy your blessings and to do so in a responsible way that is going to make all of those other things in our lives give praise to you in, in the way we live. We want to show that we're true disciples. We want to show that we're growing disciples. We want to show that we're strong disciples. And Lord Jesus, would you work this in us as your church? And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Dan.